0: Turn in your Bibles, if you will, please, to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. Over the last couple of studies, we've been focusing our attention upon Philippians 2.1, which says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Stop there. That's what we've been musing on. That's what we've been studying. That's what we've been reflecting upon. And if you remember, I told you that with that little word, so, that begins verse 1 in our English text, so, it ties us in the overall context to Philippians chapter 1, specifically verses 27 to 30 which speaks of the Philippian church living gospel-worthy lives. And we've been talking a lot about that, haven't we? Gospel-worthy lives, which include both salvation-receiving and suffering-engendered lives. It's very, very clear. Verse 27 of chapter 1 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This gospel-worthy living that Paul was commanding the Philippian church to be involved with needed spiritual resources. I mean, if you're going to be a person... A believer in Christ, who should, of course, be involved in a local church, in ministry, banding together with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ for the sake of living lives worthy of the gospel, knowing that in addition to receiving that salvation from God, it's His sovereign work, that you're also called upon to suffer for Jesus' sake. You and I, therefore, are going to need spiritual resources beyond our own capacity, right? If we're going to be saved, not only in order to serve, but to be saved in order to suffer, and that's what the Bible clearly tells us here in Philippians 1, 27 to 30. If that's the truth, if that's who we are as Christians, suffering Christians to some degree, some smaller, some larger degrees of suffering, then we need spiritual resources far beyond our own. And what Paul does is after he commands them to live such a gospel-worthy life, he's going to tell them what spiritual resources are there for them. And he does that in Philippians 2.1. I just read it. So if there is, and there certainly is, Paul's meaning, any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. What he means to say by this is that you and I have all the spiritual resources that we're going to need in order to be noble, suffering Christians. What kind of spiritual resources? Consolation or encouragement in Christ. That's a huge spiritual resource. We are consoled as we live the Christian life, as we suffer for Jesus Christ, we're consoled and encouraged because we're in Christ. We have union with Christ. We also have comfort of love from the Father. It doesn't say from the Father there, but it's implied because it's talking about the Trinity, the Son of God first, the Father second, and the Holy Spirit last. We have comfort from love. And the Bible says, Romans 5, 5, that the Holy Spirit has shed abroad in our hearts the love of God. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have the love of God that was a motivation to send His Son, the Son of God, to die for sinners like us so that we could have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. And we have the fellowship or the participation in or with or by the Holy Spirit. These are phenomenal spiritual resources at our disposal. Consolation in Christ, the love of God, fellowship or participation in the Spirit and also Paul says there in verse 1 of chapter 2 affection and sympathy we actually have the affectionate Christ and his affection is love for us and we have sympathy the sympathy from God the Father according to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 we have 2 Corinthians chapter 1 this sympathy of the Holy Spirit in our lives, so that no matter how much we're suffering, we have these spiritual resources at our disposal. Now, we may not always choose to use such things at our disposal, right? Sometimes we forget about them. Sometimes we're not as aware of them as we ought to be. But Paul is commanding something here. And as he's commanding something here, he's not only reminding us about these spiritual resources, but he's also trying to tell us that we can have absolute fullness of joy when we remember these spiritual resources, when we utilize these spiritual resources, whether in our thinking or our behavior or both. And those are the kinds of spiritual resources that will take us through even the hardest times, even the most intense suffering, we have these resources in order to obey God. Now, I want to show you that the reason why Paul tells us these things in verse 1 is so that we can do something about it. And here's the command that he gives in verse 2, and it's in the very first phrase. If there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, any comfort from love, the love of the Father, and there is, any fellowship in the Spirit, and there is, if there's any affection and sympathy, he says, here's the command, it's an imperatival command, it is to be done always and forever by us, here it is, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. You may not have realized this, but we are commanded in this text, Philippians 2.2, 2, to be filled with joy. See my smile? I'm uh, rehearsing in my head, smile, Lance, because joy is something that seems for Christian sufferers to be somewhat elusive. Now look, we're all here and we're looking quite pretty, especially you moms. And we're here in a very nicely air-conditioned church. This building allows the facilitation for us to have joy. And we should have it, and we must have it, and we will have it because so many of us are suffering very little. And yet around the globe... There are more suffering Christians, even those who are being martyred for their faith, combined in the 21st century than ever before in the other 20 centuries combined. A lot of hurting Christians out there. And yet, what is so dynamically interesting is that as you talk with some of them who are by stealth attempting to meet together in small groups singing in whispers and even those who are being led to the slaughter they have something that seems that you and I should have in absolute abundance and what is that joy that's right joy It seems as though you and I should be the most completely filled with joy because we're not suffering hardly at all. I mean, why is it that we sometimes struggle with having joy in the Christian life? And I don't mean just some joy. I mean what he says here. Complete my joy. That word complete, uh, plerao, is the idea of Being filled with joy, being filled to overflowing with joy. Why is it that we seem to struggle, the ones who appear to be less severely treated than most Christians around the world? Why is it that we're the ones struggling with having the fullness of joy and the ones who are actually struggling, the ones who may even today breathe their last, who seem to have the fullness, the effulging? joy of God. Why why is that? Well, I think it's probably because at the top of that list, our idea that even as Christians in the good old U.S. of A., maybe we deserve joy. Maybe we deserve it. Maybe we deserve all the goodies. Maybe we deserve all the blessings. I mean, we are America, aren't we? We're that nation that's blessed beyond any other nation. We have the embarrassment of riches. Well, we're, the, we're the ones who are sending missionaries around the globe. We're the ones who are, who are feeding millions of people who are poor and, and destitute. We're, we're the ones who seem to have so much. And because of that, Sometimes maybe with all of that blessing and all of these funds and tremendous overabundance and the manifold embarrassment of riches, we can become somewhat self-centered. And we can assume that when suffering comes our way, in whatever way it will come, then maybe that's just not fair. Maybe that's just not right. I mean, why, when we're the most blessed country, and we're the ones blessing other countries who are not so blessed, we experience adversity. I mean, we sometimes come to the place where we assume that there are certain countries like ours that ought to be the ones who are the blessers. And when it comes to our own needs to sometimes be the blessed, even in the midst of such adversity, we think something's a little askew. Hey, we're the ones who are supposed to be uh, receiving all of the kudos. And when sometimes if we might go through suffering and we might go through it in such a way that in time's future, either with our own children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren, where maybe the good old U.S. of A. becomes a third world country. Maybe we're the ones who are going to be martyred in mass. Only the Lord knows. Only the Lord and His plan will reveal such a thing. But one thing we know, that in the first century, in Philippi, with the man who's writing this letter, who is himself in jail, who is not in jail for something he did wrong, but he's actually incarcerated for something he did rightly. And he's trying to tell the Philippian church that when you're living in a pagan society and you're a church that is seeing the steam-hot unrighteous response of such a pagan society that maybe your suffering for the sake of the gospel is not only in God's plan, but is actually a part of God's blessing. God's blessing. You mean God's blessing in my hurt? God's blessing in my pain? God's blessing in the fact that I may even be martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ, yes, yes, and that's why Paul can say, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now this is counterintuitive i I, I grant you that' it's, it's sort of um, sort of the concept that if you're attempting to honor God, if you're attempting to follow God's will, if you want to be one of those countries or those those churches or those persons individually who are wanting to honor God, and, and you are wanting to give away some of your stuff, and you're wanting to bless others, whether it's down the street or across the world, you ought to receive in response to that all the goodies. All the affirmations. no pain, no sorrow, no tears, no suffering. And yet I think what Paul is saying here is, no, if you do it right, you'll suffer. Second, Timothy. If a man desires to live godly in Christ Jesus, he shall suffer what? Persecution? Persecution. Here's the, here's the spiritual principle. If you do it right, you're going to pay. If you do it right, you're going to pay. And in the midst of the Philippians paying the price from their conversion out of paganism into Christianity, into following Christ, into following the way, the truth, and the life, they're paying for it. They're paying for it. And I want you to notice something here when he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. All of this idea of suffering for Christ starts out from the things that we think. In fact, this whole concept of our mind and our thinking, our apprehending things, our our using, our, our rationality to figure out what's going on, that's number one on the list of importance, number one. In fact, so much so, look back at chapter 1, verse 27. He says that I may hear of you, latter part of the verse, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one, what? One mind. Remember, I told you that that's the word soul, with one soul. They, they are to be thinking in such a way that they are one-souled about what's going on. And what's going on? Verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. You know what that implies? They have opponents. That's, that's, that's the whole point. The whole point of my introduction is, and this, by the way, is the introduction. This, this opposition, this opposition against the truth of the gospel is because the Philippians were doing it the right way. They, they were actually bold in saying Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him, and and that gets you in trouble, because in this culture in the first century. You were supposed to say, as a Roman citizen, Caesar is Lord. Seeing even Caesar as a a godlike figure, as deity. And these Christians were banding together, small in number. And Paul was writing them to encourage them. And he was going to try to send Epaphroditus and, and Timothy, if he can. And he wanted to come himself. And he wants to tell them in his discipleship of them, I want you to know that in this persecution you're going to have to have some spiritual resources and one of the first is you're going to have to be of the same mind which would complete my joy. It would be the fulfillment, the fullness of my joy to know that you are all together in this and that you're thinking the same thing. And he's going to say again, being in full accord at the end of verse 2 and of one mind at the end of verse 2. Mind, 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 mind. It all starts there, my friends. There's no premium on flabby Christians mentally. There's no, there's no premium. There's no, there's no ribbon. There's no trophy for, for Christians to be sloppy in their thinking, to have a flabby mind about these things. In fact, of the ten times this idea of the mind or for to think is used in Philippians, three of these are in this current passage passage from chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, three of the ten times. Very, very important. And of other words that are translated in and with our English word mind or thinking or mindset or contemplation or reasonings, they all have in common the use of this immaterial part of us. Okay, what you see as Lance is the material part but there's an immaterial part, and that is what I'm using right now to communicate. I'm thinking things, and then I'm saying things. So all of us have the material part, that's our physical body, and the immaterial part, and the immaterial part is the most important. Number one, our thinking. Philippians 1.27, with one mind or one soul. Philippians 2.2, being of the same mind. Philippians 2.2, being in a full accord being of one mind. Philippians 2, five. have this mind among yourselves which was yours in Christ Jesus. So we've got to have a Christian mind, my friends, and we've got to think the right kinds of thoughts, and we've got to have the right kinds of spiritual resources, encouragement in Christ, love from God the Father, fellowship of the Spirit, affection and sympathy, But there's something to do as a result of our thinking, and that's our practical living. So it's my mind, and then how my mind issues forth in practical service. And that's where he gets to next. And this is what he says in verses 2 into verse 2, verse 3 and verse 4, which will occupy us this morning. Here's what he says. I want to give you six things, six joyous things expressions that God wants the Philippians to have and for you and I to have and these are phenomenally important. We got to think about them first and then we have to determine in our thinking how to live them out. And the first of these six expressions of God's joy through Paul is love. Love. That's the first and it is most important. Notice what he says here, the first expression of completed joy by Paul in this phrase in verse 2 is this, having the same love. Having the same love. And is it no wonder that Paul says that we have to have the same love as a local church congregation because love is the chief of them all? Does Paul not say in 1 Corinthians 13, now there is faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is Love. But notice what he says, having the same love. Remember, this is a letter written to a congregation. It's not something that you and I can read and assume that when I've read it, it is to me only. Now, you can read it and say, how can I personally apply this to my life? But this is a letter written to a church, and it's being read to a church, just like I'm reading it to our church. And he says, I want you to complete my joy, fill my joy up to the fullest measure by being of the same mind. Well, how can I do that, Paul? What's happening in my thinking? How does my mind need to apprehend this truth? And he says this, "Here's the expression of the fullness of love when I see this congregation having the same love." That's what he's saying. Having the same love. This is this is uber huge. This is so important. Because if love is the greatest virtue, then the thing that the world looks to most from us is our love for God and our love for each other. Remember I told you last time that in Philippians 1, 27 to 30, it's kind of a a view that sees the church going out into the world. This passage, Philippians 2, 1 through 4, is a kind of reverse. It's the world peering into the church. And they're looking at us. And they're seeing what we do. They're watching our attitudes. They're seeing how, number one, we are united in the same love. They're watching us. They're watching us so keenly. Now, their motives are that they're watching us so as to see us be tripped up because they want us to fall, because they want to say about us, you're no different than me. I see this lack of love in there. Well, look, we've got so much lack of love out here. You're no different from us. You say you're Christians. You say you love one another. You say you love Jesus Christ with all your heart but I don't seem to see the same kind of love except for this puny love, except for this hypocritical love that's no differentiation from the love out here. Which is the same, which means that I can stay out here and do what I want to do because you're hypocrites in there because you don't have the different kind of love. It's the same. And, and we ought to say to them, do you know what, if you're a hypocrite out there because you at times are the best critic of yourself, where you are hardly ever criticizing yourself, well then come in and join us because we're readily wanting to admit that when we're not what we ought to be, we admit it. We say it. That's a part of love, isn't it? A part of love is saying that we are at times hypocritical in our love or lack of it that that's true but we also say about ourselves that we want to learn in ever-increasing ways how to love how to grow in such love how to be more loving more caring more kind and this love it's a challenge it's a challenge because everything we lived like out there continues to seem to want to press into our love for each other here and make us not as loving as we ought to be and make us wanting to love ourselves more than we love others. And so this is like the giant incubator. This is just the, uh, this is the greenhouse of Christianity. This is where we learn to love ourselves so that when we're out there, as the church looks at us and they're peering into our love, they can say something like this, well, I admit that the kind of love that you express for me and for your fellow believers is a love I don't have. I admit that. I want that love. I need that kind of love. I need to love like you guys are loving, not perfectly, not always as sincere as it must be, not always as clear as it should be, not always as loving as we're growing into a greater love as it should be, but there is something about you people that really does put me to shame. That's the kind of love we're talking about. And that's what he means by having the same love. Here's the second one. Unity. Unity. I told you back in Philippians 1.27 that the Greek word that Paul uses there, the mind word is the word soul. Psyche. And here in Philippians 2, the one word which Paul uses that the... English Standard Version translates as sum sukos. It's a very rare word, it comes out of that word suke. And the little sum S-U-M that's put on the front of it means together. It means together. So it's a it's a together thinking. That's why it's actually translated with four words in our English Standard Version. Being in full accord being in full accord. It's only one word in Greek. It's a very rare word at that. And the sum on the front of it and the word that it attaches to is that word for soul or mind or thinking, and it's a together thinking. Now, that is such a challenge. That is such a challenge because we all have our own minds. We all have our own thinking. And you put a couple of hundred people in a room and say, I want you all to think the same things. One of the first things someone's going to say in their mind is, I don't want to. Anything you say, I want to do the opposite. Just because I can. You know, it's like that person, when you're walking down that sidewalk, and you see along the sidewalk these beautiful houses, and they've got perfectly manicured grass. And it's just the right height. And they've got that little sign right there on that beautiful luscious grass that says what? Don't step on, Don't step on the grass. What do you want to do? You want to <laughs> step right on it? And when you put your heel on it, just stomp on it because you can. That's called our sin nature. That's called the remaining sin of our heart. And when somebody comes along, especially the preacher, and he says, now, beloved congregation, I want you to all be in one accord. Not the car, the concept. (laughs) I want you to be in one accord. I want you to think the same thing together with all of us. And that tendency, because of our remaining sin, because of the sin of our hearts, we want to say, I'll do my own thinking for me. Thank you very much. You say, Well, that's that's you're kind of hard on yourself, or you're kind of hard on us. The bottom line to complete the joy of the Apostle Paul, which is to do nothing other than complete the very joy of God Himself, is that we are of one accord about the right things. I'm not asking everybody to do something that this book doesn't tell us to do. I'm only saying what Paul is saying under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says we have to be unified. Now, it could be practically done. It starts in the mind, but it could be practically done. you want to know where it's practically done? Turn over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. You want to see where it might practically take place? In Acts chapter 4, early church, they're learning how to love and they're learning how to be unified. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, the Bible says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's our word. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. That's practical. I mean, that gets down to your stuff. That gets down to your car. That gets down to your clothes. That gets down to your money. That gets down to your food. Got an email this week. Precious. Bill and Peggy Barber, who are just at that point in their, their ages where Peggy's saying, you know it'd be, be really better if someone could help us maybe get to church. Just that idea of driving, just not as confident, I want, want to be safer. You know what? We will drive those dear people who are sitting right over there every Sunday until they go to glory, won't we? That's where it gets real practical because we love them. They're in their late 90s and they've been driving up to this very Sunday. I went over there to them right before the service and I said, did somebody bring you this morning because I saw this email and she said, no, I drove, but maybe next Sunday. And I said, absolutely count on it and there should be hundreds of you who are standing in line to bring them to church every Sunday it's honoring to them right that's just one example because there's this blessed unity of mind that produces a wellspring of action where we're saying, we want to reach out. And you know, for every good example, we've probably failed ten times over. I readily admit. But there should be such a, a unity among us. And with the, the completion of Paul's joy, he's telling the Philippians that they're to assume a one-souled relationship with each other with the same love toward each other for the purpose of showing the outside world how Jesus Christ changes collective lives individual lives to be sure, but collectively this is being read to the church and they're supposed to respond to it. And here's the third one, harmony. Harmony. This is the next expression of of joy. And of one mind. Do you see it there at the end of verse 2? And of one mind. And I know there's going to be somebody out there because I did it too when I was studying this. Someone's going to say, he's already mentioned that right by being of the same mind that's what i did i chased this around for hours i chased it around well and you know there are even some copyists who when they were copying not the original autographs of the scripture but as the copies happened through uh, the decades and the first century as they were copying it apparently some of them thought the same thing too so they tried to either put them together or they tried to eliminate one because they thought it was a copyist error Because it says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. That's an addition. We've already heard that. Move on. Check, please. Right? Guess what? This is literally thinking the one thing. That's that one mind phrase. Thinking the one thing. So here... Is what I did. I tried to trace around. What's the one thing? I mean, if it's that important that it accentuates and fills up Paul's joy and fills up the joy in the heart of God Himself, what's the one thing? Thinking the one thing. Well, I have to believe that the one thing is the gospel. You know why I think that? Because look in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Do all things, and this is coming right out of the context of seeing Christ as the great exemplar of all that we're talking about this morning, and how we're supposed to work out collectively our own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, the word of life, the gospel, Christ, His salvation. Thinking the one thing means that all of us aren't just being of one mind, but we're also using our collective mind to focus on the gospel. He's already said, living lives worthy of the gospel, even in opposition. And now you're appearing as lights in the world, so you got to think the one thing. Because how easy would we be taken off track if, in our opposition and the persecution about us, we start to lose our fervency for the gospel? Because I'm getting beaten upon. Because I got a knife in my back. Because I'm going to trial. Because I was baptized in that river in front of everybody, including not just the church, but the watching authorities, and as soon as they took me out of the water, they took me to jail. And now I'm languishing there, and they beat me every third day, and they they beat me with with, uh, the the kinds of lashes that end up eventuating in the kinds of, of death warrants where bugs come in. And jump on those wounds as soon as I'm returned to that cell? Just one example. And do you assume that someone who knows that there's a very real possibility of something like that coming would then say something like this, if I'm to think the one thing of the gospel like these others, it might be the end of my own life. I don't think I'm ready for that. I don't want to leave my family. I I don't want to be involved in this. This is too hard. I don't want to take up my cross and follow Jesus Christ all the way to crucifixion. I, I, I don't want those things. It's too challenging. It's too foreboding. And no doubt that's why when Jesus Christ Himself said in John chapter 6, If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood. In other words, if you don't go to crucifixion, be willing to do so like I'm going to that Calvary cross. If you don't do that, you're not worthy of me. And it says in John 6, 66, and some of them followed him no more because they counted the cost and they said not willing to do it. And apparently, some in the Philippian church might be tempted to think of something else than the one thing you and I need to keep thinking about the one thing the one thing of the gospel how is the gospel in my life how is the gospel bearing fruit in my life you want to hear a prime example of that from yesterday my dear wife and I went to a funeral service a memorial service at Grace Community Church for 26 year old Lizzie Effinger died of cancer She'd been battling cancer for a long, long time. She'd had a first occurrence and then some treatment with a cell transplant for the lymphoma and then a reoccurrence. And in the midst of the newness of the reoccurrence, she had just been married. And her beautiful, loving husband, Caleb, gave a testimony yesterday that here is my sweet, dear wife, 2014, we met, we talked at church, we married in 2015, and three years later, my wife is dead of the ravages of cancer. And here's what he said privately to my wife and I in our home on Thursday of last week, and then on Sunday publicly, He said when she was on the respirator, she wasn't able to to speak. She was battling. She had graft-versus-host disease because her body was rejecting the transplant. And they took the respirator off so she could speak, and she had about a 10- to 12-hour window in which she spoke, which was the last time she ever spoke to anyone. And after she spoke love and private words to her husband, She said to him and others around them, mainly her family, I'm so concerned about three young girls that I've been witnessing to. And I sure hope that even in the eventuality of my death, they could come to Christ as a result. Now, I tell you that's other person thinking, isn't it? That's other-centeredness. In fact, that's the next one. Look at the fourth one. He goes on, and he says here in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition or conceit. I can't imagine a 26-year-old young lady laying there about to go be with her Savior who would be thinking anything other than, this is incredibly painful. I can't wait to go be with Jesus so that the pain would go away. Instead, her husband says, who says this? That was was his word. Who says this? Who does this? I'm concerned about these three young ladies. I want them to come to Christ. I've been witnessing to them I've been talking with them. I've been pleading with them. I've been praying for them. That, that's someone who has what I call non-self-seeking. Non-self-seeking. Love, unity, harmony, and this fourth one, non-self-seeking. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And did you know that it says in Romans 2.8, speaking of unbelievers, that they are self-seeking. That's, that's the difference. The difference between Christians and non-Christians are that the pattern of non-Christians' lives are that they are self-seeking, not all the time and not at every moment. And it's also true that the characteristic idea of Christians is that they are not self-seeking, not all the time and not at every moment. Sometimes as Christians we can be incredibly Selfish and have selfish ambition. Sure, we can, and we can even have conceit, as he says here, pride. And this is surely a negative idea. Pride is even mentioned as one of the works of the spirit in Galatians five twenty six. Conceited, sure, but in the whole, on the balance, our hearts, our desires is to be those like Lizzie Effinger who at the very moment of her impending death is saying, my heart is filled with these young girls and their need to know Jesus Christ. Who who says that? Who, Who does that? It's a person who is living her life well and who is endeavoring to die well. That's her. Non-self-seeking. You know how to be a powerhouse of a witness to those outside the church of Jesus Christ? Love, unity, harmony, and non-self-seeking. And then, fifthly, humility. Notice what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves oh my word oh my lands humility allows me to count to have an accounting this is a this is an arithmetical term i'm actually figuring out the arithmetic Of humility, I I need to count others more significant than myself. And you say, "Really?" Yes, Jesus Christ. A couple of verses later, what is said about him? Verse six: Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Wasn't just willing to stay in the glories of heaven. But he lowered himself voluntarily because he counted his work on the cross as how he could love us in such a way that we could turn around and count ourselves before others and have the kind of humility that says, you're more important than I am. And then sixth and last, service. Service. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. And notice how he individualizes it there. Let each of you. Now he's going to the individual. Now he's saying to every single person in the Philippian church, let each of you, each one of you. And I'm so grateful that he says, look, look. It means to consider, to be intentionally considering and perceiving how to look away from self and toward others. What are your needs? What can I, what can we do for you? I'm going to look away from self. I'm going to look to your needs. And by the way, when it says there, each of you look not only, but also to the interests of others, the word alelus is there the word for one another. You know that this is one of the one another's of the New Testament? It may not look like that because it doesn't usually become translated as one another, but this is one of those. This is the humble one another and we should look at not our own interests, but his own interests, my neighbor, the things of themselves. That's what's important. Just like the Son of Man, Mark ten forty-five. He is. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is this is huge. I mean, a love and a unity and a harmony and a non-self-seeking and a humility and a service. This is this is huge. It would make the local church's life and joy complete, Paul says. And it would make your life filled with joy no matter what happens, no matter the persecution, no matter the opposition. Can you imagine these Philippian believers? They're sitting right where you are, and Paul's letter is being read to them, and they're looking at impending persecution, as you and I may be one day, maybe even sooner than we think, and that letter is being read, and you and I are hearing that there is a kind of love and unity and harmony, and non-self-seeking, and humility, and service, we shall be with those effective attributes, a force in our community like no one else, and like nothing else. And it's our thinking that is produced through our actions, so that God is pleased to draw persons to the fellowship who say, I've got to have I've got to be a part of that love, that unity, that harmony, that non-self-seeking, that humility, that service. I've got to have that. This is a draw toward the gospel, isn't it? This is the one thing we're thinking of. And by God's grace, we'll live this out as a local church and we'll see others join in the days to come. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that these six expressions of the local church's joy. Paul's joy. God, your own joy is working toward completion when we have these wonderful attributes. And they must be ours. And by your grace and enablement, they will be ours. Thank you for the encouragement in Christ, the love of the Father, the fellowship of the Spirit our affection and our sympathy from them and through us to each other. May this be our very joy. In Jesus' name, amen.